It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 493 of the Columbia Calling podcast. This week's very special guest is Paula Delgado-Kling. She's actually been on the show a few times before. We've been discussing over the 10 years of the podcast, her book, which will now be a reality coming out in... 2024 there is a launch date january the 28th in coral gables but listen on to hear the full details of that launch at books and books that's 265 aragon avenue coral gables 4 p.m be there at that said the book's title is leonor the story of a lost childhood and you can guess leonor is a former farc gorilla who over two decades more or less has shared her story her life with Paula Delgado-Kling. But there are other parts to the story as well. Paula had her own issues. Her family had her own issues during the, I would say, the most brutal years of the guerrilla conflict in the country. And so we talk about all these things, what it means to be a woman in the guerrilla, what it means to have been, uh, I would say, displaced during this period of time, what it means to have gone through the government, housing and sort of rehabilitation program so very exciting to be able to talk to her so many years later and see that this project has come into fruition so that is pretty cool indeed thank you to everyone who supports us on patreon.com forward slash columbia calling you continue to well bring us joy that way and i hope that some of you have downloaded columbia at a crossroads a historical and social biography which of course you have received for free there on patreon because being patrons of the columbia calling podcast of course my little editorial company fuller v hill has also brought out brought out in addition to columbia at a crossroads which you can find as an ebook on amazon but we've also brought out better than cocaine uh, learning to grow coffee and live in Colombia by Barry Max Wills, and it's doing incredibly well as an ebook. But on the 30th of November, we have the actual paperback launch here in Bogota. But if you want to get it sooner, then you can buy it on Amazon as a Kindle ebook. Uh, the reviews so far have been, well, glorious. So please look out for both of those books and make, well, this guy here and another man in the coffee zone, that's Barry, uh, make us happy because, you know, it's kind of a dream to start an editorial and start to publish books. Anyhow, we'll be back after the news with Emily Hart and then we'll be talking to Paula Delgado-Kling about her book, Leonor, The Story of a Lost Childhood. Thank you again. Don't go away. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by... BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map 
destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnb.co columbia.com and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure so that's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com thank you for supporting our sponsors i'm emily hart and these are your top stories for the week of october 30th 2023 Local elections were held this weekend and results are in for 32 governors and more than 1,100 mayors. Turnout was 59% with 23 million voters in a more peaceful day than was expected for the country's regional polls. There was a 28% decrease in public order violations this year. However, the seizure of money intended for vote-buying rose by 289% compared to 2019's regional elections. Over the weekend, 350 people were arrested for electoral crimes, ranging from the destruction of electoral materials and money laundering to illegal possession of identity cards and voter corruption. Across the country, candidates from traditional parties and political backgrounds won out. After the 2019 regional elections majority of Colombia's governors were right-wing or centre-right. That changed very little in 2023's elections. Mayors, on the other hand, markedly shift to the political right during these elections, this according to political mapping by outlet Sia Vasia. With first-round victories, Bogotá has a new centrist mayor, Carlos Fernando Galán, while Medellín has returned to right-wing Uribismo with Federico Gutiérrez, who won over 70% of the vote. The Geneco political clan, meanwhile, will maintain its power in the department of César with the election of their candidate, Elvia Milena San Juan. This despite the arrest warrant issued earlier this month for the matriarch of the political dynasty, Cielo Geneco. Similarly, in Atlantico and capital city Barranquilla, the Char political clan won with a historic number of votes, cementing their power in the region, even in the face of recent scandals and decades puppeteering politics in the region. Just three days before the election, documents emerged allegedly from the Mexican intelligence services linking the Chars with the Sinaloa cartel as part of a paramilitary-linked money laundering operation involving Serfinanza, a bank belonging to the family. This did not stop the election of Alex Char as mayor of Barranquilla, gaining 73% of the vote, with the runner-up gaining only nine. The Char family, which owns supermarkets, radio stations, a bank and the city's football team, have claimed that the document linking them with organised crime in Mexico is false and that legal action will be taken. Notably, Andres Escobar, the man whose image went viral after he fired a gun at protesters in Cali during the 2021 national strike, has been elected as councillor in that same city, representing the far-right Centro Democratico Party. Meanwhile, Yair Acuña, under investigation for links with paramilitaries, has been elected mayor of the city of Cincelejo in Sucre. 
and in the city of Maicao in La Guajira, Samuel Santander López Sierra, known as the Marlborough Man, having had his candidacy for mayor revoked on the grounds of his convictions for drug trafficking, encouraged the electorate to vote blank in protest. Ultimately, around a third of the electorate did vote blank, a higher number than voted for any single candidate, though not enough to reach the 50% threshold and force a repetition of the election. Though some seek to read the local elections as a referendum on Petro's government, and some commentators are calling it the return of the status quo to Colombia, others point out that the vote mainly revolved around very localised proposals. The shift will, in any case, cause governance hurdles for the left-wing government's agenda at a local level. President Gustavo Petro lacks alliances with the mayors of Colombia's major cities, many of whom oppose basic elements of his agenda, particularly on security and social issues. Following these elections, a historic six of the country's 32 departments will have female governors. After a visit by President Gustavo Petro to China earlier this month, diplomatic ties have been upgraded, now considered a so-called strategic partnership. The two countries also signed 12 cooperation instruments, including sanitation protocols, aiming to boost imports like Colombian beef and quinoa, as well as the establishment of several working groups meant to improve commerce. Colombia has, however, yet to join the Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative, unlike 21 of its regional neighbours. The upgrade of relations means China now has strategic ties with 10 of the 11 South American countries with which it has relations. Guyana is the only country with which it has ordinary bilateral ties. Paraguay is the last South American nation with ties to Taiwan, which China claims as part of its own territory. China is Colombia's second-largest trade partner after the U.S. Retired Colombian Army Colonel Germán Rivera has been sentenced to life in prison by a U.S. court, having accepted charges for the 2021 assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise. Rivera is understood to be one of the leaders of the group of mercenaries who carried out the murder. He had denied all charges until September when he accepted allegations of having recruited a group of 28 assassins, 26 of them Colombian, to kill Moise, supposedly to stop him sending a list of key players in drug trafficking to the US. Colombia will sell geothermal energy to Ecuador in the face of that country's energy shortage amid low-producing hydroelectric plants caused by the worst drought in 50 years. Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lasso announced that Colombia would be providing 450 megawatts, helping Ecuador fill a 650 megawatt deficit expected later this year. And the United Nations General Assembly has adopted a resolution calling for a cessation of hostilities in the Gaza Strip. Colombia voted in favour, along with 119 other countries. There were 14 votes against and 45 abstentions. Those were your headlines for this week. Thanks for listening. And we are back. This is Columbia Calling, episode 493. 493 episodes, 10 plus years on the air. My very special guest has been on a few times, but not for several years. Paula Delgado-Kling, Colombian, living in New York. Uh, we've been talking, you know, previously in last, well, I, think, I mean, it's more than pre-pandemic, because it's always before pandemic and 
post-pandemic, um, we were talking about her book, and her book is about the lost childhood of a young lady. And I know that it goes into Paola's, I know it, it kind of runs parallel to, to Paula's uh, upbringing as well in Colombia. So we're going to talk about all of these things and hear her side of events and about this book, which I believe is going to be launched in a shop called Books and Books on January the 28th in Coral Gables at 4 p.m. So therefore, you have to all be there, my Florida listeners. Paula, welcome back on the Columbia Calling podcast. Richard, it's so nice to be back. <laughs> it's a real pleasure. It's been a while, but the last time we saw one another was it was in New York, pre-pandemic. It was when we were <laughs> <walking> around. <laughs> when we were, when we were. I mean, I don't know. I felt young and beautiful back then. I now feel old and haggard post-pandemic, uh, and two children. <laughs> right. <laughs> ah, it's awful. Um, Paula, it's exciting because it's been more than a decade i mean i've been working on my own book for more than a decade and you've been working on this book for some time well just give us the, the title and and how it came about so the book is called leonore the story of a lost childhood and it came about because i was a graduate student at columbia university i was in the international affairs program at sipa and i wanted to write a paper about child soldiers and the child rights policy in Colombia towards child soldiers. This was 2001. It was the Pastrana government. And I could not find any information in regards to child soldiers. Um, I did find a, a book or so or two, like a, several sources about the Shining Path movement. But of course, it was very dated. It didn't apply to Colombia. So I reached out to Human Rights Watch. And uh, Jose Miguel Vivanco was incredibly supportive and kind. And he put me in touch with Sebastian Brett and Robin Kirk. Mm -hmm. And they're the Colombia uh, field people for Human Rights Watch. And it turned out that they were in the middle of editing a report on child soldiers in Colombia. And this was the background to the book, in a way. Um, in the end, um, I was able to corroborate a lot of what this young woman told me because of this report from Human Rights Watch. Because, of course, it's always very difficult to present it to publishers and say, well, this happened. Well, how? She's unreliable. Okay, well, it's corroborated by Human Rights Watch, some reports from Amnesty International. Um, so then the next thing was I, went, I flew home to Bogota and I was able to visit some of the group homes where some of these former child soldiers were being housed under government care. Um, and I met this young woman, Leonor, she was kind and we spent several days Then we kept in touch over the years, over the months, over the years. And, uh, this conversation for this book took place over 19 years. So <laughs> a 
book came out of a paper when I was 27 years old in graduate school. Leonora is no longer a child. Has she got children <laughs> of her own? <laughs> <laughs> Neither are we. I was 27, and now I, you know, you guys do the math. It was 2001. Yeah. Um, and so, but the, the, the issue was that what she thought she knew in 2001 wasn't the entire truth. And she was 17 years old, and we know 17-year-olds. They also have their teenage hormones and other ideas about what may or may not be that their parents went through. Mm -hmm. So it took her a lot of time and therapy and patience and reuniting with her mother and having calm conversations with her mother to really distill what it was had happened to her because in her view something entirely different had happened and we know that 17 year olds imagine a 17 year old in those circumstances and fighting with the parents and put in domestic abuse and put in poverty lack of education displacement and how can a 17 year old truly know what happened to her with patience how, where where in Colombia is Leonor from? She's from Putumayo. Um, so she was born in the um, Puerto Guzman, Puerto Leguizamo area. And her family ended up displaced from their farms in those areas. And, and she ended up moving with her mother to Mocoa. Mm -hmm. And arriving there as a, a young girl. Um, when Mokoa was not this bigger city, small city, that it, bigger town, smaller city than it is now. So they were able to squat on some land that to this day, the land they squatted on is where they all live. And, and you've been able to follow in her footsteps? You've been with her down to Putumayo and you've been with her no, to her family? I go to Putumayo. It was, it, logistically, it was um, not a risk I wanted to take. Mm. Um, so we spoke on the telephone a lot, um, over Facebook, just so, and the telephone actually was a better kind of source because without looking at another person, there tends to be less emotion. So you just say whatever's on your mind without having to worry about how the other person's facial expressions come about. It's like, oh, that was really, really bad that happened to you or whatnot. So she just spoke her mind that the telephone actually ended up kind of more like a way for her to just chat and relieve herself. And, and Leonor has children of her own now? Leonor has two little girls. Um, one of them was born in a um, group home. Um, and the other one was born, oh, well, I guess again in a group home because she was in the group home for like 25 years. Um, but one of them was born when she was relatively, Leonor was relatively younger. And the other one 
I guess like more with a, like a studier partner who's no longer her partner. Um, but both, yes, she's got two little girls who are no longer little girls, really. Like they were four a couple of years ago. So eight, nine, ten. <laughs> I, um, I, I ask because obviously, you know, what she grew up experiencing, she, she obviously doesn't want for her little girls. So we did talk a lot about that because that was one of her biggest concerns because she did return to live in Makoa and her biggest concerns were her girls facing the same sorts of hardships that she faced because when she returned, it was this, even though she had gone through government therapy and even though she had had other experiences and she'd lived in various different regional zones of Colombia from Eje Cafetero to Bogota to different areas. She even lived in Hiron for a while. Um, her community and her family had not. So they were still stuck in time and still saw things the way they had forever, which had led her to join the FARC. And I mean, so she was in the FARC. She joined up at 17. Was she a victim? At 17. That's what she said to me when she was fresh out of the FARC. Two weeks. Mm. So I met Nenor two weeks after she was out of the FARC. And she said, um, I, I joined when I was 17, but through the years as we retraced. So what, what I, I think perhaps she also said, since in me, a kind of therapist, because I had the notes of different parts of her life, in different areas. And she'd go back and say, no, 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 that didn't happen this way. It happened this way. So growing up in Mokoa for children, and this is very common is that they do certain favors for armed groups. And the armed groups, drug trafficking, whatnot, is integrated very much into their community. It, it's, it's walking down the street and seeing it, suddenly, okay, you're involved in some way and you see it and your uncle, your aunt, whoever, they're all in the fabric of these groups just by where they live. Mm-hmm. Um, so and her mother did not get along very well. Okay. Again, she was a teenager. We all know teenagers now, right? She wanted certain freedoms. Her mother was trying to protect her, possibly also seeing things that Lenore did not see at the time that her mother wanted to protect her. So Leonore would find refuge in the fart camps. And from what I understand from her is that a lot of kids, teenagers, go to the fart camps because it's a free meal. There's also booze. There's dancing. There's freedom. There's unsupervised time with other kids. So she would go back and forth, back and forth. But along with unsupervised, you can imagine all the other stuff that happened in a country like Colombia, where there's a lot of machismo, so to speak. So she would go back and forth and 
till finally there was one day where this commander took a look at this beautiful little, not little anymore, but beautiful blooming girl and said, you're staying. And that was the end of her back and forth of living at home. And, uh, yeah, she said she was 11, 11 years old, 12 years old, because, um, what she also clearly explained to me is that to be with a virgin or to be with the youngest is a privilege for the commanders, the purest. So along with that, he gave her a lot of STDs and problems through the years that still linger to this day. Um, 11, 12 years old. On the other hand, she's very resourceful. She's whip smart, whip smart. Like in any other place, you know, she would have thrived to the top because how does an 11 year old girl survive in a male dominated group? This is something of somebody who's really smart to have turned the situation around and to have accommodated it in her mind to think, well, no, I can actually do something with this. I found in Lenore true resilience and grit. Um, so she found through the commander that although, although all these really bad sexual stuff was going on with abuse with him, she was also still able to get certain things for herself and carve out a position in which, because she was la compañera del comandante, the commander's, I don't know what, it's not really truly girlfriend. What is it? Like, Mistress? but it's a little bit more than mistress because it's almost wife in a way i would we just say pareja or first girl yeah. first girl because it's not truly compañera like first the commander's uh -huh. first first girl let's say uh favorite one. got a lot of privileges as well that allowed her to stay alive mm -hmm. to not be sent into combat to sometimes live in a home, in a, not in a home, in a house with running water and a roof over her head. Hmm. So she wasn't a combatant. In the end, she was a combatant. And that is how the government captured her, was able to take her into the government home for rehabilitation. And you met her in the government ho home. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like? So if I think back now, I am glad I was 27 years old and just really eager and ambitious to get a story. Uh, because it was a tough group of kids, a tough environment. Um, they spend their day watching TV, lounging around, but they also get to go to the park, play basketball, be kids again. Um, some of the government homes in the warm climate have a pool and it's a chance for them to laugh for a few hours in the pool to forget that they were in war and that their situation and be children again. And so the government's prime 
goal to begin with is to give back a little bit of childhood, which all children deserve. Sure. Um, but your, hers was in, was it in Bogota or she was moved it around? Was, uh, yes. Uh, south? Uh, it was throughout. It's it was different homes throughout. Okay, That's a, I just find it. I I can imagine it being not dissimilar to the small kind of uh, orphanages, the sort of barrio orphanages that they have. But is there security? Because of course the stigma surrounding someone to have come out of the FARC and the children. I mean, they're, they're, surely they're placed in secure uh, homes. Uh, yes and no. Um, it's not that there's security out front, um, mm. but I also did have to go through several leaps to get mm. clearance to be able to visit. And yeah. I understand that was a long haul for me to have been able to do that. Mm, cool. Now, I mean, the, the story of Leonor obviously is, is fascinating in as much as it's tragic, but also now we look at the positivity of her out of the FARC looking after her children, I, I suppose, you know, life. Uh, what kind of social, I mean, situation, socioeconomic situation is she in now? So she's back to where she started. Um, she She's considered a success case. She went through 25 phases of the government program. Mm -hmm. uh, when she returned to Mokoa, she did not want to continue with government therapy because she um, didn't want to leave her girls alone for a few hours. And there was no government program in Mokoa for her, no government psychiatrist, psychologist, therapist. Mm. So back to her situation, again, she's resourceful. And the way she tells it, however we choose to see it, but sometimes women have to do what women have to do. And so she relies a lot on her um, live-in boyfriend, um, who, ironically enough, is a former par paramilitary. I, do they have political arguments? <laughs> she says that's the one rule they have in which they don't talk about anything politics okay okay and oh, that they have separate friends and separate groups but they still love each other well that's good and <laughs> i mean i guess was he in the aguilas negras or the uh the auto defensas that or? i don't know that I don't know because it, it was it's I, my relationship was with Leonor. It wasn't yeah. with him. I yeah. it was yeah. a separate thing. Okay, I have heard of this before. You know, I have heard of these couples. I think it's a shared hardship. I think of a, of an upbringing. Uh, I think that's where they they come and there's there's that uh, you know mutual ground on, on that. I I, I, I wanted to. Sorry, go I think, on. Sorry. I think it's also, again, like what area of the country you live in and who your community is that mm -hmm. gets you involved in whichever group that might be. And, and the era and time, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, this story obviously came to you. It was something that you chased 
uh, when you're at Columbia University. But there is a side to this that obviously now, two decades, is very personal to you too, because you grew up, you know, formative years in Colombia, and you and your family were under threat. And so I see, you know, you don't, you know, different, I mean, different situations altogether, but things where perhaps it gave you an opportunity to talk uh, as an equal uh, with Leonor in this. I mean, you, you and your family were under threat from kidnapping. Well, I, I would never pretend to be like equal to Leonor. Like it was completely different circumstances. <laughs> sure. uh, but the but, conflict continued. But maybe the conflict, what happened is that the conflict made me a little bit more open and willing and to have tender feelings towards Leonor that maybe other people would not have. An understanding. Uh, yes. Or, uh, so I grew up in Canada. Mm. And as most Canadians know, Canada is very open and understanding and happy and welcoming, or so it was to me in the mm -hmm. mid-80s when we arrived there. And in Canada, in Toronto, my Toronto that I remember, you grow up with a sense that everyone has some sort of goodness inside of them. And that if, like parents say, like, if you only look hard enough, there's always that person doing something good in the world. So I guess I came to Leonor with just a complete open canvas of like, what happened? What, what, what happened? And I recognized that she was probably the only person in the group home who was really open and kind to me mm -hmm. about being transparent. Mm -hmm. There was one other boy, but I was more drawn and particularly interested to the woman's side because all these horrendous things happen to women in Colombia and they don't ever get a voice or a say. And even when they do, it's not them speaking, but it's some white male telling their story. Yeah. So I was drawn just to truly get to Leonor and say, well, what happened? And it was very, very generous and kind. And this speaks volumes to how we should all be kind that in her background, there was nothing for her to trust a white woman from Bogota with a Bogota accent. But yet, but yet we were able to form some sort of kinship. And I think that speaks to hope, peace, resilience, Something positive, definitely. But so, but you, I mean, so you say you grew up in Canada, but that's because you guys left Colombia because of the threats. Okay, so in the mid 1980s, um, 1983, 84, there was the M19, mm -hmm. which it was an urban guerrilla group formed mostly of university kids. Mm -hmm. A lot from the countryside who were really smart and there should have been spaces created for them at the time, but there weren't. So they all got together and decided to be rebellious because it was the time of the Vietnam War, Trotsky. From what I understand from interviewing a few of them, it was fashionable to be the rebel, to be Che Guevara 
to go around in a motorcycle and meeting a spy in Cuba and whatnot. And actually a minister at the time, a government minister at the time, referred to them as simply as kids acting out. Well, this kids acting out decided that the FARC were not going to get anywhere because they were not bringing their fight to the cities. And that unless they brought the fight to the cities where the decision makers, political, economic, whatnot, social, were, nothing was ever going to change for people. So we were one of a few families. There were a lot of families who were threatened by the M-19. And what I mean by that is that my family, my parents were told that the M-19 were following our routines, where we went to school, where we tended to drop off and get candy if we were, uh, where my ballet lesson was, all of these little things that would help them to kidnap somebody. Um, Maybe me and I was only eight years old. So one day the M19, they went into a university and they pulled from her classroom, this young woman that was a family friend. And that evening my father came home and within three hours, both my mom and dad had decided, no, you're leaving, you're leaving. And three days later we left for Toronto. Um, it was a li- it was a sense of displacement in which now as an adult, I remember my mother walking around the house pensive and picking up certain trinkets that she wanted to take with her that meant home to her, like frames, pictures, photographs of her side of the family, an ashtray. I remember an antique, a, a miniature antique clock a boss that had belonged to my grandfather, things like that, that she could feel home in Toronto, which would be an entirely new experience for all of us. Although my brother, my older brother, was already in boarding school there in, in an hour from Toronto. And that was primarily the reason why my parents chose Toronto, because he was there. Um, but also they were just very drawn to Canada interesting it's and the, well we we need to jump in with the m19 um obviously our current president gustavo petro was a member of the m19 uh, you know when he lived in i think it was zipaquira is when he joined up and became an intellectual in that area and became uh, i guess it's kind of theoretical um so i think if I'm not wrong, you've interviewed members of the M19. Uh, have, did you bring in sort of, you know, versions of your of your upbringing to say, listen, I was under threat by you guys? So I was. I spent quite a bit of time with Vera Grave. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I was interested in the female woman version of how Vera Grave was able to be a commander in a male-dominated group. She again shared with me a lot of anecdotes of having been abused as a woman. Um, 
she 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 was told that she could not have children because as a woman and a commander that's not the right thing to do and that she didn't have that right because it wasn't what the group wanted for her um i found a lot of uh like transparency again with Vera Grave in the way that we sat a few times in her office um, at the think tank. Um, I went, she had me up to her apartment, which I don't know where she lives now. I hope she's fine. I hope all is good with Vera. But she lived at the time in um, overlooking the, in Bogota, overlooking the, um, the bull ring. La Plaza yeah, Los Toros. The bullfighting. The bullfighting ring. So as a writer, I thought it was very appropriate that she opened up the shades and there was the bullfighting ring. And she commented to me that she loved to watch out the window when there were bullfights. And I thought, okay, I'm not, she's very smart. I'm not sure if she's like trying to start some sort of intellectual bullfighting ring with me or something. Um, but I was able to tell her that truly I thanked her for having allowed me to grow up elsewhere with different opportunities and different um, values, different friends, different outlooks than if I had just merely been a, uh, girl from Bogota. Um, in some way, her, them, M19, displacing us and displacing my family, I got to have a really good education. I mean, I speak three, four languages. I got to go to Brown University. I got to go to Columbia. Maybe if I'd grown up from Bogota, I might have just been one of these country club wives. <laughs> possible you know every weekend los lagartos or something uh <laughs> the country club i think it's it's fascinating and of course the m19 you know it's really fascinating to me that a government minister calls them sort of students or young people acting up because they're responsible for some of the most heinous i mean heinous and visual Uh, guerrilla attacks, especially, you know, the, the, the Palacio de Justicia, uh, the Dominican Republic Embassy. Remind me, there must be others that I can't remember. I mean, I know that it was that they robbed a whole load of arms from the military depot, and I also know that they stole Bolivar's sword, which was very, of course, symbolic. But, you know, these these activities that they participated in were, were awful. I mean... Uh, One thing that popped up in my mind while you were talking is I, I'm, I'm sure that the M19 obviously had their list probably written down of who to, who to kidnap. Did she remember your name? She did not. Okay. <laughs> but I, I mean, I was very, very young. Um, yeah. But my our family friend, um, who I've actually didn't use her real name in the book just for her privacy because I know she's gone through a lot. I brought her up and 
she said, oh, she was lovely. Everyone loved her. She would actually assign boxes, cardboard boxes, to be pieces of furniture. And she would say, no, 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 don't sit there. This is the sofa. And she loved teeth, like Earl Grey teeth. So the, as Vera calls them, the compas, got together with their own money and bought her teeth. And in turn, this young woman would say, well, you gotta come over to tea, to my space. And when she started a dialogue with them about the M19, this young woman said that they should not kidnap people, but raise money through raffles and bingos. And they were endeared by her in that respect. But I mean, she survived. She was pulled out of her class in university, which is shocking as well. Uh, how long was she held for? Oh, it was, oh, Richard, I'd have to look back. It's a couple of years. Wow. A yeah, I mean, it's, this is not a this is not an express kidnapping. There's a couple of years is serious. Oh, it was years, and uh, one of the anecdotes of the M19 is that they, when the the night they got her, they um, it, uh, the commander laid out boxes and boxes of cornflakes and said, "You see, you're here all this time. You got to go through all those cornflakes. That's just to give you an idea of how long you should expect to be here." And, and and where did they hold her? I think they held her in Bogota. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we when we uh, read news of a kidnapping, the Gabriel Garcia Marquez one, it's it's all in in Bogota and sort of like you know these peripheral neighborhoods where where the the protagonists are are of course um, held, which makes sense because these are these are kind of you know stateless parts of the city. Right. Oh, Which, you know, Sonor's yeah. homes were in a lot of those stateless parts of the cities. Mm. It was the peripherals where the roads are no longer paved, that you have to take three buses to get to Transmilenio. Mm. Um, what does, what the does Leonor do now? I'm sorry? What does Leonor do now? She's a mom. Okay. And so she washes the clothes in the river, she cooks, she watches the kids. She's a a mom. Yeah. But she, I guess I mean, she's always expected to be, you know? Yeah. Not that she came out of her mold. Her life returned to what her mom's life was. And and she survived the massive flooding and landslides then in Mokoa. If she's in these, if she's in this, what was it? It was, must have been 2015? Yes. Yeah, because I did a lot of reporting on that, obviously. But yeah. it's, uh, you know, oh. it's uh, aggressive cattle farming, which, you know, had led to deforestation and all of these other things. And then there was a buildup of so much rainwater and, and this unstable ground that the uh, the river in Mokoa, but not even burst its banks, just took over most of the town. And of course, the people who were, the hundreds of people who were killed uh, are, of course, were, of course, the most needy, the dis displaced, living in these, uh, you know, uh, very uh, difficult and impossible situations alongside the river where people don't want to live. 
but she survived. Did she talk about that? Uh, I, no, we did not talk about that. It was an absolute tragedy. I mean, it was. Not, yeah. Doesn't, doesn't thinking about actually it's so horrible this uh and of course the people came from around the world rescue teams and so on to help i'm i'm curious uh, leonor now and her, her childhood uh and of course as an adult how you have been able over two decades to see how she has you know again it's you are like as you said earlier like a, it's like therapy it's a catharsis for her to be able to put the record straight i think in a lot of times you know uh, it, it, as you mentioned earlier no no uh, she goes paula this it didn't happen that way ha, it, this has been something where she's been reconciling with her experiences to be able to therefore you know explain to you really what happened and to herself to herself truly more than me I think for her, with me, it started as a game a little bit. <laughs> the teenage game. And I took the bait. I was like, that's fine. No, no problem. Um, but as the years went by and as we became adults, it was no longer really theatrics. Um, and it, I found that when we spoke a lot or when I went through it with her, well, last time you said this, in 2002, you said this. In 2005, you realized this. That's the extent to how closely we went through it. Um, it was it, it was a way for her to not only reconcile what had happened to her, but to put, in, put it in perspective, I guess. Put it in blocks. What's up? Like, you and I both know, like, okay, we started high school at this time. We were at this high school, all of that. But to her, all of that's very murky because of trauma, because of um, a, a lot of abuse. Um, she also was into cocaine for a while. She abused alcohol for a while, Um which is not surprising. It's readily available to her and she's having a hard time. Right? There's nothing else that can help sort of soothe her. She would say, oh, I really, I just really like whiskey. <laughs> is this um, while she was in the gorilla or afterwards? A little bit of both. Both. Apparently cocaine in her circle in the gorilla was very readily available. Putumayo. Which it's not surprising. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> that's I mean that's fascinating because you know in a lot of when you talk to you know former gorillas and stuff they always talk about how this was off limits and uh, they don't participate and they just tax and so on and so forth. I mean they, they they play the media very well, but to hear it from you, to have heard it from Leonor that she did have access to all of this is certainly quite striking. But again, remember, she was first girl, right? She got what she wanted. She also asked for clothing. She asked for face creams. She wanted perfume. She got the perfume. She had a camera and she posts like you and like people we know on Instagram. Not that she had an Instagram, but um, so how she was able to, with the help of the 
psychiatrist later was a lot of the photos in her camera, putting them together with photos of other people that they had. And she could say, oh, yeah, I was there and this and that. And that's also how the government soldiers were able to say. So when they found her, she was hiding in a house pretending to be a farmer. And as she says to me, it was so ridiculous that I even pretended to be a farmer because the cap around her was of sun, the suntan or sunburn that she had, which was minutes before her nose was scorched. Her hands were bleeding from carrying wood and equipment and all these things. She was not a farmer. It was very easily for the government soldiers to identify who she was, but she left her pack outside the house and her camera was in it and they went through it and said bang well who are you and so again a little bit of the abuse came oh we found the commander's whore that kind of thing from the government soldiers which goes both ways right <laughs> again though it's woman again the the society again though it's woman but again though it's a 17 year very clearly a minor because her body was minute. Minute from from having survived 10 days or so in um, 10 days or so in the in the bush um, with hardly any food. She was she her and her compañeros were surviving on panela, um, the brown sugar the tubes of brown sugar, which of course have a lot of calories, you and I know, but that they were surviving on that. She was minute. She had a fever. She probably already was going through a lot of the STDs that cause fevers. Um, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, I, well, I'm going to be the first in line, maybe not in oh. Coral Gables, to get the book because I've been kind of following your <laughs> following this this document for for again about a decade um, and I want to get it where you know, you've told us that it will be books and books January the twenty eighth two thousand twenty four that's on Aragon Avenue in Coral Gables four p.m. for those of you who are in Florida but where will I be able to get it after that? So you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop, yeah. and um, if you all click on my author website, just PaulaDelgadoPling.com, you will see reviews. Um, I will keep posting about other events around the book. It's still only October, so there's a lot of planning still to do for January. Um, and then follow me on Instagram, and I'll let you all know how it goes. Um, well, no, because we're going to have you back in January after after the launch, so that you can tell us about the experience, the emotional experience of finally getting that book out here. I know. It's been a while, right, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I understand it fully, though, but... It's so exciting. Her story, though, in her story and the way to tell it and the narrative and finding the right voice. As I, I have this great, great agent. She just kept saying, it just is. Those kinds of books take that amount of time. 
it's, 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 it's tiring, isn't it? Because the story. It's, not, it's considered maybe memoir, but it's also biography. It's also war and conflict. It's child rights. It's a lot of different things that don't fit into one. And just think about it. You have to go out, get the information, corroborate the information. The information's wrong. Why? Go back. There's her story. There's my story. There's historical story. There's the voice. Yeah. Remind <laughs> us of the title, Paula. Leonore, the story of a lost childhood. So and it's go, folks. or books. Mm-hmm. Okay. There you are. We're going to get it. We're going to buy it. I'm going to get it. And then when you're in Bogota, you're going to sign it. For us so all, we'll have, all of us. Bogota, we'll have a book launch in New York. Yeah. Uh, and we're working on several other cities. Let's see, Boston, um, Chicago, maybe. Let's see. L.A., Ooh. maybe. It's I'm still more likely to be in L.A. Before long. <laughs> <laughs> but well, Bogota. Yeah. No, if you, have an, uh, if you have an event here in Bogota, we will definitely be here. And, of course, we'll announce it on the podcast and all over social media and all the hills, and we'll get all the people there to come <laughs> and buy the book. And <laughs> Paula, thank you so much for your time. I'm so very excited, uh, and I know it's going to be a great success. I think, well, you know, my success is really Lenore having trusted me with her story. That's very humble, but, you know, you have no. to get it out is if that young woman hadn't opened up to me i wouldn't have been able to write this book or understand half the things that now make a little bit more sense to me yeah there's that there definitely is that i mean you know i guess it 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 really is and this this story leonor's story accompanies you in so long i mean you know this is it's become it's not a life's work because there's still plenty of life to live it's become a major life project. Yes, I, I think I go back to a quote by Joan Didion in which she says, I write entirely to find out what I'm thinking, what I'm looking at. And I guess Lenore's story was a mirror to that for Columbia. That's a great quote. We can rely on Joan Didion. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we- <laughs> we'll we'll bring this to a close now. Uh, but thank you so much for sharing this and such. I mean, you really, it's clear, you know, the the way that you have developed an understanding of what Leonor's story is to be able to put the narrative and, of course, run parallel a little bit to your family's childhood and what you guys experienced. But it's her story, as you as you mentioned, but interviews with people like Vera Grave make this as well, you know, a great document. So we have been talking to Paula Delgado Kling, and you will find her book everywhere you get books. It's called Leonor, The Story of a Lost Childhood. I'll plug it one more time. January the 28th, Books and Books, that's at 265 Aragon Avenue in Coral Gables at 4 p.m. Be there. (laughs) so thank you again everyone who's been listening we'll be back next week with more stories from or about by Colombia so thank you everyone and bye bye
The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by... BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors.